This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Take the baseline out. Uh-huh. 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 Let it bump, though. Hello, everyone, and welcome uh-huh. to another episode of the Hardwood Knox Podcast. I am Dan Pavali coming at you with my super duper, incredibly esteemed, awesome times, awesome, fantabulous, spectaculario, fully, wholly, totally, completely employed as a lawyer, Andrew, co host Andrew D. Bailey. Uh, we are going to tear through a mailbag on what is right now a very early Friday morning, even earlier for Andy, who is two hours behind me. He is an early riser, so everyone should thank him for getting up so that we can get this done. Before we do jump into your questions, though, I just want to continue to remind, implore, beg, plead, ask that everyone rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. Andy and I love seeing those numbers go up. We get all giggly when we see them go up. Uh, Your reviews are appreciated as well. Throw us five stars. If you have critical feedback, leave it in the comment section. That's still the best way to help out the pod. Uh, The second best way would be to recommend it to someone who you know likes bad basketball takes and is looking for a podcast to listen to. We will be forever in your debt if you're able to do that. Stealing people's phones and just rating, reviewing, and subscribing to us for them is also acceptable. As always, you can continue to get 15% off at the NBA Math Shop. That's nbamath.com slash shop. Promo code Benno, B-E-N-O. And now, before we hop into this mailbag, we ask the question everyone, everywhere, is dying to know, always. Andy, how are you doing? Doing good. Like you said, it's early. It's even early for me. Um, and I, I think I inadvertently woke up my children on my way out to my makeshift podcast studio in the car as well. So, um, early morning for the Bailey family. I'm sure but I'm ready Shelby to... appreciates that. Just a, a bunch. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's just hop right into this. We got a ton of responses. And my preparation was... I, I began in earnest last night. And then someone pick up... Which, of course, I had to respond to. So our last one was completely off the cuff. This one may be somewhere in the middle. Um, I'm going to start with a question from Nathan Hand at Handyman23. Who jumps out of the pack and makes their first all-star? It'll be in the East and possibly a few first-timers. I agree with you, Nathan. Going to be someone from the East. Maybe just to make it even more exciting, we'll each try to pick one from the West, too, but I think that'll be much, much more difficult. I'm going to go with Ben Simmons on this question. he is, I think we've dropped this in the pod a few times, but 538 has him as the seventh best player 
in terms of projected wins above replacement. Next season, Giannis is the only Eastern Conference player who's projected to have more. I could see Simmons, who's coming off a rookie season in which he averaged 16, 8, and 8. I could see all three of those numbers bumping up slightly and Philly being, you know, top three, top four in the East for most of the season. It's going to be really hard to deny a guy um, an all-star bid who has those kind of numbers. I think I even made sort of a tentative argument for him to be an all-star this past season. Um I just I think I think it'll be hard to deny him this time around. Yeah, I want to pick someone uh, other than Ben Simmons in the East. I just can't. He would have been my pick as well. And you actually did pick Ben Simmons to make the All Star team when we did our All Star predictions last season. So it doesn't surprise me that you would pick him. His numbers last year were historical, not for a rookie, but just for a player yeah. in general. And now you kind of cake in his development. Uh, assume he'll have extra control of Philly's offense just because, uh, and I would think that he gets there. You, you've also lost LeBron from the East. Yes, Kawhi Leonard is, is there now, but you don't know what he's going to look like. I think another name that could be interesting to watch, and he tends to be more of an advanced analytic all-star than your typical all-star, would be Otto Porter. That might be someone to to watch in Washington. Their offensive pecking order is always kind of weird, and he doesn't do too too many things on his own, and that could impede his case. But every year, probably for the past three, I would say, he comes up among the most valuable players when you look at all the advanced numbers. And and I would think that maybe he has an outside chance of getting in just because the East is is so fluid with their all-star food chain. Eric Bledsoe could be another name as well. He's flirting with the line of being wildly overrated with how he kind of closed the regular season and what happened in the playoffs. But again, in, in the Eastern Conference, if he puts has one of his better years, I, I would say that, that that there's a chance he might be able to crack that as well. I'm, I'm scanning over the Western Conference teams, and it really is. <laughs> there's just so much talent there that it's hard to see anybody cracking in there for the first time. Um, Jokic, maybe, Jokic, maybe right? But I think they're, yeah, their their respective teams. I think would have to be pretty darn good um, at the time. The and that's possible. Obviously, I think both of those teams are set up pretty nicely right now. Um, those are two I can think of in the West. Nobody, no, no other rosters are really jumping out at me right now as as having someone who's got a, a solid shot. There's just there's so many all stars already over there. Yeah, there, there's just a ton, and even, especially among the big men, too. It's just incredibly hard to wedge your way into that conversation. Um, at let's underscore go underscore Celtics. At the end of this NBA season, what one word do you think will describe Dante Exum's overall performance? Um, I'm going to use the word solid. I, I think if he's healthy, he'll look decent. Uh, obviously health is a big question mark for him at this point. He's, he's missed most of last season. He missed an entire season a couple years ago. Um, but I, I don't think that's his only hurdle this season. The other thing is Utah is for the second year in a row, maybe even more than that. One of the deeper teams in the NBA and they have a lot of guards and wings who can play minutes. So even if he's solid or good i it's hard for me to imagine him having more than like 20 or 25 minutes so i don't think 
a ton of fans who don't play close attention to the jazz will suddenly be talking about Dante Exum, but he showed some, some pretty impressive flashes last year. The only players in the league who matched his regular season per possession averages for points, assists, rebounds, and steals were Stephen Curry, James Harden, LeBron James, Nikola Jokic, Kyle Lowry, Chris Paul, and Russell Westbrook. Um, for that real brief little stint that he was uh, available at the end of the regular season, he had some some really nice moments. And then, of course, there was the defense on James Harden in the playoffs, which was, to me, one of the biggest stories of the Jazz's postseason. There was... I, Obviously, Donovan Mitchell got most of the headlines, and as usual, he deserves them. But uh, uh, possessions uh, that Exum had against James Harden were really eye-opening. And if he can be that guy consistently and and still be fairly productive on the other end, I, I think he could have a pretty good season. I think I'm going to go with the word underappreciated, probably for oh, that's good. probably for everything you just said. The Jazz have so many guards, and not only that, you look at Rudy Gobert, in addition to Donovan Mitchell, but you also have Joe Ingles, who who receives a lot of love in Utah. Um, Tabo Cephalosha and Jay Crowder will receive a lot of due from the minutes that they play at the four. And what he does might kind of fall by the wayside, in large part because he won't have ultimate control of the offense. You'll probably see his playing time um, curbed just because you have Ricky Rubio as well, and you don't necessarily, at least in my mind, want to play those two together and you're looking at someone who hasn't shot the three ball well for his career his percentages have actually declined along with his per per 36 minute volume as his career has progressed which isn't the the greatest sign although I would say him shooting 80.6 percent from the foul line last year maybe that's a good harbinger potential improvement just his finishing at the rim though uh, maybe his ability to kind of just run more coherent pick and rolls and then as you mentioned with James Harden, just his capacity to defend across multiple spots. And you look at just the possessions he spent during the regular season last year uh, against some players defending them. And you have names like Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum and Lou Williams. Uh, He can defend both guard spots pretty easily. And I think the fact that you saw him go up against James Harden so much in the playoffs, while Harden is a guard, I think we're going to see more stints of Dante Exum switching on to perhaps small forwards and Mm -hmm. we'll see him kind of be even more versatile on defense then. And I don't know the jazz is a team. I would say outside of this podcast and a few other few others, and then just the regular basketball nerd circle, they might be a team that flies under the radar and we just don't know it because we talk about them so much. Uh, He's going to be, probably one of the more underappreciated aspects of whatever success they have uh, this year. Just because, again, I don't think he's going to have this prominent role, and yet I think he's going to be more important to the cause than some of his numbers might suggest. Did you see the gif I posted of him, like, maybe a week ago now? I mean, you post at least 50 Dante Exum gifts a week. (laughs) Yeah, so maybe it was hard to pick out the one. Um, It was... He, he was in this big group of NBA players who were, um, I think it was in California, maybe just a bunch of guys getting together to play pickup. Um, by the way, if I, I mean, get me into one of those pickup games. I don't care how embarrassing it is for me. 
<laughs> those things are just awesome. Um, but anyway, Exum and Gobert were both at this pickup game with a bunch of NBA players. And there's a clip of it. I think it was a Ball is Life video. Uh, he comes off a high ball screen from Gobert and pulls up from, I don't know if it was a three. The camera angle was kind of weird. If it wasn't, it was like right inside the three-point line. And yes, it's one single possession. It's one single shot in a pickup basketball game in the middle of the offseason. But his form looked so much better on that pull-up jumper, and he made it, um, than it has in the entire four years that he's been in the NBA. That got me really intrigued. If he's added anything beyond um, just a straight-line drive to the rim, that could do wonders for him too. And and hopefully that's some indication that he's been working on that kind of stuff this season or this off season. That is peak August detective yeah. work. <laughs> did you see the, uh, I'm going to forget who directed me to this on Twitter because I didn't think I saw it till late on Thursday night, but there was a picture of Markel Fultz um, shooting and his form looked better, but someone screenshotted it and yeah, put it, it was just a picture. Yeah. But they screenshotted alongside a picture of Stephen Curry and his form. Oh, I did not see that one. And pointed out how it was like identical looking. And I, I was uh, like taking a big sip of water at the time, and I almost spit it out because it was just, <laughs> I was just like, oh my god, welcome to the NBA in August. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure how much you can glean out of a still photo, but I, I do remember that picture, and everybody was going crazy, and I thought. You've literally seen one millisecond of a, <laughs> I don't know, a one or two second action. I just, it was very, uh, that was funny. That was peak August Twitter, like you said. I guess to keep in that theme, I'll go with this question from Kwani at Mr. Marshall 254. If Fultz is back uh, to his old shooting form, he will be the blank best guard in the league. Um, one first yeah i mean if we're look next year i don't i don't really know what that's supposed to mean if he returns to yeah his own. i was trying to decide if it meant he will be the blank best guard next season alone or just like what can he become but anyway keep going i would think he could be a top 10 guard if he's going to have, have as a, early as this season no uh um, oh, yes. I don't this season I don't like maybe a top 20 I might go as high as if he's going to have a reliable jumper anytime you get someone who can both distribute but is also sort of comfortable pulling up off the dribble particularly from three that would be a big deal uh, moving forward if he shot 41.3 percent um, from three in college it, moving forward, if you can replicate that, I would say, yeah, he would pretty easily get to top 10 guard status because he's already supposed to be um, a, a fairly versatile defender. He looks like someone who can uh, defend both the one and two, has some length, but it also looks like he might be strong and be able to handle those like more powerful assignments, maybe even those guards who might post up on the block. The one thing I do question, though, I'm not saying he'll never have a jump shot or replicate that success. His collegiate season was weird because he shot 41.3% from three and then 64.9% from the foul line. And then you get him to the NBA where he's just basically not attempting threes. He attempted one three last year in his 14 appearances. And he shot 40. Ben Simmons too much. Yeah. (laughs) 
and then 47.6% from the foul line. Again, only a 21-shot sample size. I, I just question how quickly he could even develop or get back his jump shot. And I, or how strong was it to begin with? Just because that was a question uh, leading into the draft and after the draft a, a little bit as well. His career arc is going to be fascinating to watch, especially because Philly needs him to be good this year. When you look at kind of what happened over the offseason, they didn't land a big time free agent. You lose Bellinelli and Ilyasova. Their bench is probably going to go through an identity crisis at some point. People forget that the Sixers were dead last in offensive efficiency among backups before the All-Star break. And Markel Fultz, assuming he doesn't start, which I I don't think he will, uh, he's going to be a a very important part of ensuring they don't kind of fall down that hole again. And so they need him to develop or be more reliable uh, on his jumper or as an off-the-dribble shooter and it'll just be fascinating to see how he follows up last year's non-performance through through 14 games i i think if he's a top 30 guard next year i think that would be a pretty big achievement um i don't want to like i'm always hesitant to cap a player's ceiling and it's it's extra difficult to forecast his because of all the mystery that went on during his rookie year uh, for a guy to just completely overhaul his shot when he was a 40% three-point shooter, like he pointed out in college, for, for, for him to just, I don't, <laughs> all of a sudden become terrified to shoot. I, I don't know if we've ever seen anything like that before. Um, it's like Chuck Knobloch level yips. Yes, that's great. I <laughs> I kept asking people this summer, my wife's little brother's a big baseball player. Does anybody remember Chuck Knobloch and how he couldn't throw from second to first? Um, <laughs> Yeah, that was crazy. And and yeah, it's it's almost that level of a mental thing, it seems like. Um, but just in terms of where he might end up, here's I'm just looking at real plus minus right now, and here are some guards that I say figure to still be at least relevant <laughs> over the next four or five years. Um, James Harden will probably still be around. Stephen Curry, uh, Kyle Lowry will probably be on the way down. Russell Westbrook will still be around. Damian Lillard will be entering. Well, he, he's already in his prime. He'll be like in the back end of his prime. Um, Campbell Walker, Drew Holiday, Fred Van Vliet, um, Tyus Jones, Spencer Dinwiddie, Kyrie Irving, Ricky Rubio, um, Lonzo Ball, Ben Simmons. And then these are just point guards. Jamal Murray. Um, Shooting guards, you got Oladipo, Mitchell. Um, yeah, that's true. Gary Harris, Jalen Brown, uh, Bradley Beal. I mean, there's just so many talented NBA guards. Um, if you're a top 10, top 20 guard in the NBA, you're a really, really, really good player. And I'm not saying he can't get there. It's just after that rookie season, it, it's just so, so difficult. <laughs> for me to to predict and again like i said if he's even like top 30 um top 40 next season i I think that's a plus and that's an improvement on the bench like you said that's what they need and if he gets to that level um that could really really help philly in the short term yeah that's a great point i didn't really factor in shooting guards when i when i was speaking even though i said guards that sort of just slipped my mind yeah and the thing is like I think we are getting closer and closer to 
basically every guard is just going to be a point guard slash shooting guard. We, we, we talk about this all the time on the podcast, but positionless basketball and, and traditional positional de- designations, um, all that stuff is rapidly changing. Um, all right. I mentioned Jamal Murray in there and I actually, uh, pinged a question or pinned a question from somebody on him at underscore Jacob underscore Simpson underscore thoughts on Jamal Murray's floor slash ceiling. Also just a side note, if the nuggets can somehow get a good point guard via trade, I believe Murray would thrive as a two compared to playing the one. Um, I'm going to answer that second part first, actually. I actually think Jamal Murray basically already is a two. The the offense runs so much through Jokic, both in you know fast breaks and in the half court, that Denver essentially starts two shooting guards in the backcourt, and I think it's quite the luxury that they have. Uh, Gary Harris and Jokic, or Gary Harris and Murray, do a lot of similar things on offense because they can they can run the offense with their center. So they got two guards running around, coming off screens. Um, coming off uh, curl cuts down to the rim. Um, I think functionally, at least on offense, he's already a shooting guard. So that's a nice little luxury for Denver. Number one is 2017-18, Jamal Murray. <laughs> Number two, Kyrie Irving. Number three, Chris Webber. Number four, 20-year-old LeBron James. Number five, Tyreek Evans. Number six, D'Angelo Russell, who I still haven't given up on. And number seven is 19-year-old LeBron James. Um so it's a pretty exclusive list. If he's they they got a ton of offensive options in Denver, but I think he's a guy who could average low twenties on sixty plus true shooting. Um and I I think he's gonna be one of the more dynamic offensive weapons in the league for the for a little bit now. Yeah, I'm with everything you said there. I think a few podcasts ago we agreed to call him Damian Lillard, medium well done or something <laughs> like that, medium rare, whatever it was. Uh, he, I think one of the toughest things to do, and his shooting percentages don't necessarily support this just yet. Uh, he shot 38.9% on pull-up jumpers last year, 32% on pull-up threes, which really, for a sophomore, isn't bad. When you have someone who's comfortable taking those kinds of shots, if they can ever really start hitting them, that's a huge deal in today's NBA. And he really showed that, I thought particularly down the stretch of the season in close games. Uh, He hit 45.5% of his three-pointers in crunch time after the All-Star break while shooting almost 94% from the foul line. I'm with you. I think he could end up being, bar none, one of the best offensive guards in the league. And I don't think you need to pigeonhole him into one of those guard positions. You know, we talk about uh, how positionless basketball and the Nuggets offense already runs through Jokic. He shot 42% Murray, this is, on catch-and-shoot three-pointers. And he's uh, big enough to where he can be kind of a, maybe not accuracy-wise, but a Gary Harris-level cutter. And you could put him next to uh, another guard. And the issue for the Nuggets, though, is if they were to trade for a point guard, short of it being Kemba Walker, who at this point is going to be had for nothing, Murray would probably be an integral part of any trade package for let's say Kyrie Irving just agreed to play for Denver or Damian Lillard becomes on the the trade block. I don't know if you can build packages for a premier point guard without including Murray, but it would certainly be interesting to see him play alongside one. 
he is capable of doing that. And I think his ceiling is, is ultra high. And I don't think his floor is, is all that low. His floor might just be at Zach Levine. And you know what? That's fine. Yeah. One last thing on him. Um, he got off to a really rough start last season. The first 21 games, he averaged 13.4 points, shot 42% from the field and 25% from three. And I felt like he was just sort of feeling out a new role that he was uncomfortable with for those first 20 games. If you eliminate those, you basically just say from December 1st until the end of the season, which was his next 60 games, he averaged 17.8 points, shot 45.9% from the field and 41.3% from three. Um, even if he comes back and just matches those numbers, that's <laughs> that's a pretty dynamic offensive player, especially if that's your third option. I, I think he'll probably be Denver's second option. Next season, I think there's a debate to be had between him and Gary Harris. Um, but that's, I mean, it's a nice luxury for Denver to have. They, it's going to be hard to decipher who the second, third, fourth, um, even fifth option is on that team. There's so many good offensive players. And then if he takes a step up from those last 60 games last year, um, those, that's going to be really, really tough for people to defend. Um, I'm going two people asked about the Lakers, Zach at Bears, Bulls, BSG, and at P, at P underscore Sanchez H. Uh, he asked, how good are the Lakers going to be? And Zach asked, what are the Lakers' chances to make the playoffs? Uh, I I think those two kind of dovetail nicely. My answer would just be, it wouldn't surprise me if the Lakers won 50 games just because of LeBron James being there and assuming they cut him loose for the entire regular season and don't rest him for 15 or, or 20 games or something along those lines. Uh, on a more fundamental level, I just expect them to make the playoffs. And while I do think there are scenarios in which they don't, I would be surprised if they end up missing the postseason. And that's just me reading into they won 35 games last year, and now they're getting LeBron James. He should be enough to kind of elevate them by 12, 13, maybe 14 victories. But again, the, the wild card to me is just how often are they going to play him? Will there be rest nights? He sort of surprised us all by committing to them with the four-year deal player option in the, in the final season without them signing another star or trading for another star. And so if they're really playing the long view, are we going to see sort of this rest and maintenance program that we haven't seen LeBron really put on before that could really uh, gum up their place in the standings. I tilt more toward though, if it looks like they're in danger of missing the playoffs, he'll kind of get a little fidgety and force them to make a trade. And that's sort of why I, I think that they'll get there. Even if it's as the eight seed, uh, I would be a little bit surprised if they crack the top four in the West. Uh, I think the Rockets and the Warriors are definitely ahead of them. And then I think you have cases for the Jazz, the Thunder, and maybe some of those other fringe teams like the Nuggets, perhaps the Pelicans, as, as being better contingents than them. The other thing I'll say finally is I'm very interested to see what a LeBron at the five surrounded by Ball, Ingram, Contavious Caldwell-Pope, and then one of Kuzma, Hart, Rondo, uh, Beasley, whoever else you want to throw in there is the fifth. That lineup, I think, actually not only 
has the potential to be really fun, but I think it could be really effective with him at the five. I just want to know how often are they going to go to it? What are the combinations around him sort of look like? A LeBron plus all kiddies lineup would be spectacular to me, by the way. And I hope the Lakers get to that point at at some stage in the season. Yeah, they need to do that. I LeBron at the five is instantly the Lakers' most intriguing lineup. And I don't care what other <laughs> four guys you put in there, but I think the, the, the kiddies, as you say, is probably my favorite variation on that. I can't remember who it was. Maybe it was Anthony Irwin who hosts Locked On Lakers. Um, it, it was some guy who covers the Lakers uh, full-time wondered if they might even start LeBron at the five, which would just be awesome to me. I don't think they'll do that. but uh, They should. That'd be fun. If they did, that would be awesome. Um, I'm with you. I think the Lakers get in. I'm not quite as high on them as some other people are, but I, I just, it's really hard to imagine LeBron missing the playoffs. Um, I wouldn't be shocked if they did, but yeah, if I had to predict right now, I would say that they get in. Um, I think people are maybe slightly underselling the loss of Julius Randle. And I don't really know how those two would have coexisted Randle and LeBron. There's a ton of overlap there, but like I've said a thousand times positionless basketball is on the way. So I think they could have made that work, but I think a big reason they finished as strong as they did was Randle was inserted into the starting lineup and he just went crazy. Um, he was really, really good for them. And so I think that loss hurts. Um, but of course, LeBron still adds, you know, 10 to 15 wins by himself and, and you maybe lose one or two by losing Randall. So I don't think it's that big of a deal. And like I said, I still think they get in. I'm going to add to this discussion because I think it it adds itself perfectly. Um, a question from at Stan the Man 1983. And he asked, what was the Cavs record versus the West? over the last four seasons. And I think that's obviously pointing at, you know, how's LeBron going to do now that he's in the West in 2017, 18, the Cavs went 15 and 15 against the West in 2016, 17, they went 16 and 14 in 2015, 16, they went 22 and eight. And in 2014, 15, an overall record of 71 and 45, which works out to about a 48 and a half win pace. And I was, as I was looking at those records, I thought one of the things that stood out to me first was the post Kyrie Irving team, 2017, 18 went just 500. Um, and the year before they were slightly above 500. And then those, those first couple of years, they were really, really good against the West. So maybe if you sort of split the difference, um, you can, you can kind of see maybe a glimpse of what LeBron will look like against the West. The other thing is this, this Lakers roster, it's not as good as that Cavs roster the first couple of years, right? I mean, you would agree with me on that. Oh, uh, 100%. I mean, you look at, just interject there, there, the first two years that LeBron was back in Cleveland, 2014-2015, the Cavs had a 2.3 net rating against the West. And then in 2015-2016, they had a 6.4 net rating against the West. Mm. That decline, by the way, it shocked me to see because I think we forget how good that 2016-2017 Cavs team was just because of the Warriors. Uh, they were only a plus .4 against the West in 2016-2017 uh, per 100 possessions. That surprised me a little bit. Do you have the 2017-18 one too? Yeah, but I don't know if Cavs fans want to know it. <laughs> was uh, it minus? I'm sure it's minus. 
Yes. Uh, it was neg- minus 1.7 per 100 possessions, which is a pretty decided minus. Um, a team that had a better, just for context, a team that had a better net rating against the Western Conference, the Atlanta Hawks, minus 1.2. Oh, wow. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Um, I would say... In terms of overall talent, I think those more recent Cavs teams are probably closer to this Lakers squad than those first two Cavs teams. Um, obviously, they're much different teams because this this most recent Cavs team was really old and the Lakers are really young. And so they're going in opposite directions that way. But I think it's, you know, it's going to take some time. It'll be probably two or three years before I think we can really look at the Lakers as a legit title contender. And at that point, maybe LeBron finally, finally, finally begins his individual descent. Um, although it's <laughs> hard to forecast that too. It just seems like that's never going to happen as well. So <laughs> in the immediate future, I'm going to say the Lakers will be pretty good and they're, they're probably going to make the, uh, the playoffs. How's that for a lukewarm take? That's some nice hedging there. I, <laughs> what's really but bizarre about this is we or people complained about the last year's Cavaliers team. I can't really remember over the past eight years. I don't think there's been a team that's come close to being less of an ideal tactical fit for LeBron than these Lakers right now. Yeah, and there there have been pieces published about how they might have more floor spacing than most people realize. If you get more minutes from LeBron at the five, that opens new windows. But there are just too many wild cards outside of the more inexperienced players. I think you can pretty easily talk yourself into Brandon Ingram, Lonzo Ball, Kuzma, Josh Hart being good fits for LeBron. But Michael Beasley, uh, Rajon Rondo, Lance Stevenson, no. And and that's yeah. that's kind of the just the unpredictable nature of this Lakers team is that if the established players go belly up with their fit against LeBron, and I do think that's possible the Lakers' ceiling uh, gets lowered a, a hell of a lot more than I, I think we're expecting it to at this point. All right, let's do at J-R-I-V-S underscore. This is going to be a big change of pace. If injuries never happened, who has the better career, Grant Hill or Derek Rose? Um, I think it's pretty clearly Grant Hill. He was, his numbers over his first six seasons were just insane to me. 21.6 points, 7.9 rebounds, 6.3 assists, 1.6 steals, shot almost 50% from the field. He didn't really have a three-pointer in those first six years, but it it wasn't nearly as important back then. His box plus minus pre-injuries was 5.1. Rose's box plus minus pre-injuries was 2.3. Um both were just ridiculous before they got hurt. I think Grant Hill and, and Derek Rose won an MVP. So I think a lot of people might make the argument that he was one of the best players in the league. And, and I think you could probably reasonably make that argument. But if Grant Hill hadn't gotten hurt, um, he was almost LeBron before LeBron. I, I think he would have been one of the top three to five players in the league for like a decade if he hadn't gotten hurt. So I'm going to go with Grant Hill on that one. Yeah, I think it's pretty clearly Grant Hill, right? Just I yeah. mean, you look at what his defensive impact would have been alone, even if you kind of want to say that as scorers and playmakers, Derek Rose and himself are sort of on even ground. 
you pointed out, he was almost LeBron before LeBron. He was just able to do so many things on the defensive end. And uh, there was the clip making the rounds yesterday on Twitter about how good he was during the 90s before his injuries set yep. in. He was he was spectacular. He was, he was just great. And when, you know, Derrick Rose won the MVP. I'm not trying to take that away from him, but he probably shouldn't have won that MVP. Uh, when you look at the season LeBron had that year, that's where I sort of stand on that. Uh, maybe even Dwight Howard that season, I believe, was the uh, the other one. Uh, here, I'm still fine with him oh, winning MVP. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm still fine with him winning MVP. But yeah, like you said, there were other guys that certainly had a strong argument. I'm going to Perkins for three. At Perkins for three has two questions, and it's going to circle us. I guess it's really three questions. It's going to circle us back to the Lakers. Who's going to start at center for Golden State? and Los Angeles Lakers and what type of impact will they have is the first of a two-part question is a two-part question and then he has am I wrong for rooting for Trey Burke to stay in the starting lineup for the Knicks <laughs> uh center for Golden State it will eventually be DeMarcus Cousins but before 2019 I kind of hope it's Jordan Bell I could see them deciding to play Kevon Looney um but I do, I do think it should be Jordan Bell, uh, just because when you're looking at, and maybe I'm reading too much into this, but you're kind of looking at Kevin Durant being a flight risk next summer or the summer after. You don't really know what's going to happen with Draymond Green's next contract, uh, even Clay Thompson's next contract. You want to get a better feel for what you have in some of your younger players, and why not put Jordan Bell in the starting lineup? One, because I believe, and I should have pulled up the numbers for this, but that the the starters plus Bell last year were just flames statistically, but also him playing with four all NBA talents essentially is a nice safety net and should help him grow even more. And you know, he's probably not going to stay in the starting lineup again all year just because cousins will return at some point for the Lakers. You kind of touched on this. Maybe it'll be LeBron starting at the five. My guess is it'll be JaVale McGee though for them. And I don't know what type of impact, I think Bell would be a nice, a really good spark plug for the Warriors um, when they kind of get into those malaises of theirs. I think he'll hustle a little bit more than the veterans defensively at points. Maybe he'll get up and down the court faster uh, on offense. And then for JaVal McGee, it gives the the Lakers uh, a rim runner and, and just a lob catcher. I don't and and LeBron I needs that next to him. I think on on just some level he had it a nice pick and roll partner before last season. Really, in Tristan Thompson. I'm not saying JaVale McGee is comparable, but when you look at the Lakers' other options to be the role guy or the lob catcher with LeBron as the primary ball handler, they don't really have him unless you consider Wagner or Zubak a realistic option. I think I'm going to agree with pretty much everything you said there. I So I'm going to say who I think it should be, and with the Warriors, it's Jordan Bell. Uh, even though he's a little bit undersized to play the center, I think you have basically four playmakers in the Warriors lineup. And, and I think Clay could probably make more plays than he does. He could probably even argue that it's five playmakers. If you go Curry, Thompson, Green, Durant, uh, Jordan Bell, he, Bell's passing was so much better um, than I anticipated it being. I figured he'd be a really good defender right off the bat, but he was he was better offensively than I anticipated. And like I've said a bunch of times, I love big men who can really, really pass the ball. And I think he has the potential to be that. 
I've heard from a lot of um, people who cover the Pistons, or not the Pistons, I'm still thinking about Grant Hill, uh, <laughs> people who cover the Warriors, that, that Kevon Looney kind of has the inside track on that. And I think maybe it's just because he's the more traditional option. But I think, yeah, the better lineup is um, with Jordan Bell. So I'll say, should Jordan Bell and probably will be Kevon Looney with the Warriors? And then with the Lakers, I I honestly think it probably and just positionless basketball. And it, I would even start him with all the youngsters. Um, Lonzo Ball, Ingram, Kuzma. And then I would probably still start KCP, but you could you can make an argument for another young guy in Josh Hart starting at the two, um, who it probably will be, again, like you said, is JaVale McGee. Uh, the lineup with Bell for the Warriors only played 50 possessions last year, and they had a 132 offensive rating in that time. 113.2 defensive rating. And I think as you mentioned with Looney being a little bit more of the traditional option, and you look at some of the defense he played during the playoffs, that might end up being the route that they go. And that lineup was still good last year uh, per cleaning the glass. 71 possessions, 138 offensive rating with an 81.3 defensive rating. Uber small sample, but yeah, something you consider. The Trey Burke thing, I go back and forth. We've talked probably too much about Trey Burke on this podcast and he was good to close the <laughs> he was good to close the year last last season. And I think he's still only he's going to turn 26 in November, so he's not overwhelmingly old. Uh he connected on a, a ridiculous percentage, 56.6% of his long twos between 16 and and three, uh the three-point line while shooting 36.2% from beyond the arc. Looked like he could jumpstart some half-court sets effectively. Uh, His finishing at the rim was better than it's ever been to the point that it's unsustainable. He shot almost 73% inside three feet. It would surprise me if he came close to that, being a 6'1 point guard. I'm not against him still being in the starting lineup for the Knicks because, one, it means that Emmanuel Moutier probably isn't starting, and I'm all for that not happening. But I just, I, I know a lot of people have been up in arms about the Frank Nielakina pick because Phil Jackson made it, and then they fired Phil Jackson after the Knicks fired Phil Jackson after he made it. I want to see more from him. I think he he looked like a very fluid offensive player when he had the ball in his hands. The decision making wasn't quite there. Uh, and the shooting percentages certainly weren't as well, but there were just moments, more than a few, where he looked extremely comfortable pulling up or finishing around the basket or just with a ball in his hands in general. And you factor in what he's going to be able to accomplish defensively, someone who should be able to defend positions one through three. And I don't care if you want to develop him as an off guard. I want him to get the reps. And I, maybe this extends beyond the starting lineup. You don't need to start to get that exposure. But I don't want to see the development of Trey Burke, so to speak, take priority over Frank Nielakina. And and that's just where I'm at right now. Yeah, I think they're still in a position where they probably need to be prioritizing um, a younger and, and more physically. Um, what's the word? He just fits better physically in today's NBA. Frank Nielakina does than Trey Burke. I will say... <laughs> I've I've eaten crow on Trey Burke many times over the last few months because he was he was legitimately good for the New York Knicks I think um, in his first four seasons in the NBA 
he had 5.9 win shares in almost 7,000 minutes. Uh, in almost 900 minutes in New York last season, he had, had 2.4 win shares. Um, it was a dramatic turnaround for him, and and we'll see whether or not it was just sort of a one-year spike. Uh, maybe he'll come back down to earth a little bit and closer to the levels that he played at in the first four years in the NBA. But I, I think this is a guy who maybe just sort of figured some things out. I've seen videos of him talking about how he matured and how he needed the time in the D league to kind of figure out his place in the league. So maybe, maybe things just finally clicked for him mentally. I think he proved that he'll at least be, or have the capability of being like a heater off the bench. So shout out to him for figuring it out because there was a moment there where we're starting to look like he might not even be able to hang on and stay in the league. So I, I'm with you. I think they should probably still be prioritizing youth over developing Trey Burke at this point. But um, it does make me happy to see guys who who are you know teetering on the brink of not being in the league figuring it out. So that was cool. Um, all right, I have one from at Stephen three one eight eight two nine nine one. How good could Sean Livingston have been if he didn't get hurt on that super intriguing slash ultimately terrible young Clippers team of the early Clippers teams of the early uh, 2000s? So another historical question. I I think maybe like it was basically around the time Penny Hardaway started dealing with his injury problems. I started looking for the next Penny Hardaway. Um, I've always just kind of had my eye out for big point guards like that's that's one of my favorite things to watch so that's why i was super intrigued by ben simmons um same with dante exum i'm always just kind of looking for that next magic johnson penny hardaway type of point guard and i thought sean Livingston was going to be it um he he got off to a kind of a slow start like a lot of high school to pro players do but by his third season the one in which he got hurt uh he was starting to look pretty good and his so I looked up, that was 2006-07. I looked up players who matched his per possession here in points, assists, rebounds, and steals. It was Dwayne Wade, Baron Davis, Chris Paul, Jason Kidd, Tracy McGrady, and Andre Miller. Um, Andre Miller. I, yeah, there's a name from the past. Um, under, I, I think probably an underrated career, but anyway... I think Livingston was on his way to borderline 20 and 10 potential. I don't think he would be anywhere near the type of player he is today. If he hadn't gotten hurt, I I think he would have continued to develop um, into more of like a dynamic explosive type of a guy where, whereas, you know, now he's, he's almost just sort of like a fundamental. um, He just does everything really solid nowadays. I think he would have been just one of the more exciting point guards in the NBA. It was, uh, I was on a mission for my church in Jamaica when he got hurt. I was gone for two years and I, so I didn't hear about that injury until I got back and I saw videos of it and I was like, holy cow. <laughs> and, and the road, the, his, his whole story about recovery and, and how he got back to the league is really, really cool, but it's still hard not to wonder what if. What I found interesting was if you look at, before his injury, 27 in those three years, 
27.4% of his looks uh, came inside three feet. Since his injury, that number's still at 26.2, and he's shooting. And we're talking about a huge sample size now from 2008 to 2009 through last season. Um, he is shooting 66.8% but inside three feet since his mm-hmm. injury. And it's just kind of tantalizing looking at that trajectory. Uh, what would he have been had he had the same explosion? Would he be taking even more looks at the rim, be even more accurate? His mid-range game has been pretty on point, uh, shooting 45.4% during that time between 10 and 16 feet. He would have just been, I don't even know if I can adequately describe it. He just would have been incredibly good. And it kind of, you know, his like you said, his road from recovery has been, it's been great to see how he's, uh, salvaged his career, but it also kind of sucks to think about how good that he he could have been. Totally agree. Um, do you have one or two over there you're dying to get in as like rapid fire questions before we wrap it up? Yeah, um, I can. I don't know why I scrolled uh, past it, but someone wanted to know how good can OGO. It's Jared Hendrick oh, at JRD MH22. Where do you think Ananobi will end up in his career? And can I have amazing stats that prove he'll be a superstar soon? Uh, the word superstar stood out to me because it, uh, it seems that Jared might think that OG Ananobi is going to follow this Kawhi Leonard type trajectory. And now that he's yes. playing with Kawhi Leonard, uh, maybe that's not particularly far-fetched. I'll, I'll get to these numbers first. Uh, this stood out to me because as a wing who is strong, but he's not like, you don't look at OG Ananobi and think that he's going to F people up. When he played the four last year, which was almost 700 possessions, the Nuggets had a net rating of 13.3 with... You mean the Raptors? Raptors, wow. Excuse me. Um, Yeah, the the Raptors had a net rating of 13.3 with him at power forward. Um, When you remove DeMar DeRozan from the court in those situations... Uh, the, the sample size is still fairly substantial, about 300 possessions, and they had a net rating of 11.4. And you just look at what the Raptors should be able to accomplish now that he's going to have Leonard and Danny Green next to him. We might really get to see Ananobi blossom on the defensive end. Uh, the question with him, though, will be, can can he ever expand his offensive horizons? Will he ever be given the chance to do that either since you look at the nuggets uh wow the raptors roster what the hell is the matter with me i'm <laughs> i'm tired and sick um you look at the raptors roster and they don't really need him to do more uh almost 75% of his shots came without taking a dribble last year what i will say and is an encouraging sign you look at the the rest of his looks uh comes out to exactly 26.6% of his field goal attempts came while taking one dribble or more his effective field goal percentage on those attempts 59.7 and that might be an encouraging harmiger maybe he's someone who can't pull up off the dribble he only attempted 10 pull-up jumpers last year hit five of them but only attempted uh 10 pull-up threes excuse me if if he can get some straight line drives or just create for himself to get to the rim and you start there, that's kind of what happened with Kawhi Leonard. And we saw the mid-range game uh, come a little bit later. And then in 2016, 2017 is really when he looked like this guy who could pull up from three. I don't want to make that comparison, but I think Ananobi could end up being 
an all-star, maybe a fringe all-star. Uh, and, and that is not much of a leap for him to get there. To me, he's there defensively. If his three-point shot holds, that'll be something that's interesting uh, to watch. He he did shoot sixty-five, uh, excuse me, thirty-five point two percent on catch and shoot threes last year. Started off so hot and then kind of cooled off as the year went on. Those were all big keys. But just watching what he was able to do defensively and some of the fundamentals on offense, just something as simple as his shot selection right now. And then again, I was surprised to find out that his shooting percentages, uh, his effective field goal rate when taking dribbles at all was so high. This might be a more complete player than is given credit for. You you look at the Raptors right now, and I think a lot of people are curious to see what is Pascal Siakam going to turn into because he flashed a, a lot of uh, uh, passing last year that people weren't really uh, privy to beforehand. I'm still, I'm all in on that Anobi train. Superstars probably going a little far, but it wouldn't surprise me. When you look at the Raptors as young players, I would still pick him as the one most likely to become an all-star over, obviously, Wright, who isn't really that young, Van Vliet, and, and even Siakam. So this is kind of a random list, but rookies who took at least 153s and had a box plus minus better than 0.5, there's only 36 players on that list, um, which is actually a little bit more exclusive than I anticipated. <laughs> and then I sorted those 36 by true shooting percentage. Um, the top of the list has some names that like a few of them may not impress people, but I'm just going to re- rally off the top 10. So rookie season, uh, 150 plus three point attempts and a 0.5 plus box plus minus sorted by true shooting percentage. Brent Barry, number one, no surprise there. Davis Bertans, uh, I think technically tied for number one with Brent Berry. Landry Fields, uh, blast yeah. from the past. <laughs> Rudy Fernandez, who he was actually really good in his couple years in the NBA. And I don't, I maybe he just wasn't given an offer good enough for him to stay, but he went back to Spain and he's been good there too. But number five, OG Ananobi. Number six, Jason Tatum. Number seven, Reggie Miller. Number eight, Isaiah Thomas. Uh, Active Isaiah Thomas, not the 1980s Isaiah Thomas. Number nine, Stephen Curry. Number 10, Kyrie Irving. Um, so his his combination of just being a plus player and, and already being a pretty good shooter as well, it's, it's fairly rare um, over the course of NBA history. And maybe if he gets a bigger opportunity this season, we'll get to see uh, – We'll get to learn a little bit more about him. I'm I'm with you. I think if you just look at that bunch of young guys that the Raptors have, he's probably the one that's most likely to be a star. Um, the other number I'll add to this really quick: 164 players also attempted at least 30 shots off cuts last year. Can you guess how many players averaged more points per possession in these situations than Ananobi? Huh. Um, I'll say three. Four. You're always so good at these. It pisses me off. <laughs> well, uh, I'm just the, shots in the dark. The, the players in front of him are Jeremy Lamb, LeBron James, Kyrie Irving, and Anthony Davis. <laughs> and the ones directly behind him, Evan Fournier, Trey Lyles, Jimmy Butler, Maxi Kleber, Kevin Durant. It's a small sample size because he, he really just barely cleared that threshold, but it also shows there's some off-ball movement there for him already as well. And this is a guy then who should be able to contribute, even if he never develops an off-the-dribble game, 
in large part, probably because the Raptors may never need him to, uh, he's going to be able to just make an impact offensively as more than just this straight-up, spot-up shooter. I don't think Toronto will do this, um, but I really wish they would start him and Leonard at the forward spots. I I agree with you, but the, I just want them to get to lineups where Danny Green, Leonard, and Ananobi are on the floor at the same time. That just, yeah. it, it feels like it has uh, in, insane potential on both ends of the floor. I totally agree. All right, let's do one more rapid fire. It's all you, unless you're unless you're out of them. Um, I do no, have an I, interesting one. Actually, I'm gonna. I lied. I'll do a couple rapid fire. True shooting or effective field goal percentage? Which do you prefer? At D U B I D O B I D O. Um, do B O. I don't know. I'm not gonna try. Um, I. I think true. I think they tell you two different things. I think effective field goal percentage is better at showing me who is like the better pure shooter. Like Brent Berry has a really high effective field goal percentage, Stephen Curry. And I think that tells me more that those guys are just, you know, they're great in game on the move type shooters. True shooting percentage can tell you that about some guys, but I think it's also, um, it's almost a measure of the guys who are really good at getting to the line. Like I don't, I don't put James Harden as a pure shooter in the same conversation as some of the other guys who have a, a career true shooting percentage around or above 600. Um, he's a good shooter. He's just not, I don't think he's an all time great pure shooter. He's just really, really good at getting to the line. So the added element of free throws is obviously the difference between the two and true shooting incorporates free throws. So if I want to see, um, who's just like a great in-game shooter, I'm probably going to focus on effective field goal percentage. And if I want to see who's just a, a better overall scorer maybe and who knows how to get to the line, I think true shooting percentage is, is what helps there. I have nothing to add to that because I agree. <laughs> um, what's going on with Rodney Hood? There was a couple people who asked about him. I have no answer to that question. I don't know what's going on with Rodney Hood. I don't know either. I, I guess at this point he just takes the qualifying offer. He's, I, there's no The Kings are the only team that could offer him more other than the Cavs, and I don't see the incentive for Cleveland. Even if Rodney Hood was like, I'll sign for three years and $27 million. I don't know why the Cavaliers would do that at this point. Yeah, I don't either. Um, what a rough... <laughs> I guess last year for him, it was it was the day after Gordon Hayward got traded that Dennis Lindsay told reporters in a scrum that we've already got our next leading scorer. We've already got our next number one option. It's Rodney Hood. And um, it's been kind of a whirlwind for him since then. He loses his starting job to Donovan Mitchell, gets traded to the Cavs, completely out of the rotation, uh, where he refused to come in. Um just a nightmare of a uh, free agency year for him. I, I don't know what will happen with him either. Do you have any others? Uh, as a rapid fire one, I found this one kind of interesting and it's back to all-star teams more likely to make uh, an all-star team this year in the West, Devin Booker or Donovan Mitchell. My pick would be Mitchell. Yeah. It's Mitchell just by virtue of the fact that Utah's that, but they're, they're just a much better team in the East. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, even if Devin Booker's averaging like 35 and 5. It, <laughs> um, well, he did just average 25, 5 and 5. So I don't, I don't know how out of the realm of possibility that is. But 
Phoenix is probably going to be like 13th or 14th in the West by the time the all-star break rolls around. So that, that would be a very tough thing for him to pull off. Where we, um, I think you were going to jump to the East though. Yes. This, this question, by the way, comes from Andrew Beckner at a frost 32 in the East, Aaron Gordon or Otto Porter jr. That's a more interesting one. That one's tough. Um, I think, I think Porter will have the better, like advanced statistical case, like you laid out. He's been near the top in, in those kind of numbers for small forwards for a few years now. Um, but Aaron Gordon, he could be putting up the flashier, like more, the, the kind of numbers that more people look at for all-star, like he could be a 20 and 10 guy, but then we run into the records thing too. Um, <sighs> Orlando's not going to be good, but Washington's also not going to be amazing either. I, that's a hard one. I'm going to say Porter. I'm going to say Porter too, but it's just a huge risk because Gordon is probably going to have a larger share of the offense at his disposal oh, in Orlando. For sure. Um, all right, we have a ton more, so thank you to you guys. But unfortunately, we've kind of run out of time for the day. Um, as always, thank you for these questions. You guys are awesome. It gets us talking about all kinds of different fun <laughs> topics on these mailbag uh, episodes. As Dan said at the top, if you haven't left a rating or a review on whatever podcast listener you use, please be sure to do that. Uh, we really, really appreciate those. Um, tell your friends to subscribe. Tell your family to subscribe. If you have... Um, people who you talk about the NBA with or people you wish to talk about the NBA with, uh, maybe you can have a little bit more fodder for those conversations. If you listen to this just incredible podcast, Dan loves to undersell us at the top. I'm going to oversell us now. Um, as always, we leave you with the shout out to Benno Udry and Kyle Anderson. Lowe's knows you'll do it right and do it yourself to make refreshing changes to your kitchen and bath. We do it right, too, with up to 40% off select kitchen and bath essentials during the final days of our Refresh for Less kitchen and bath event. That's up to 40% off faucets, vanities, shower heads, and more. For kitchen and bath updates that keep you within budget, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offer valid through 3-6. See store for details, U.S. only. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.